has ever known, so may we worship you in meekness of heart. May we also remember our brothers and sisters, less fortunate than ourselves, in this season of giving. Amen. Well, not everybody responds to good news in the right way. Not everybody responds to good news in the right way. And I would tell you this morning, don't be like Herod. If there's no other takeaway this morning, it's don't be like Herod, responding to the coming of Jesus. Uh, If there is any question about me being a, a brat at the age of 15, that was settled on the day of my 16th birthday. You know, when you're 15, there's one thing that's important in all of life, and it's that you turn 16. Don't you know that life is all downhill from your 16th birthday? Well, my 16th birthday represented to me freedom. I could finally get away from my parents. I could do whatever I wanted to. And uh, my 16th birthday happened to have fallen on a Sunday. So you're a bit stymied there. You can't go and take your exam, your driving test, until the next day. Uh, But I was okay with that. I'd finally come to grips with that. Um, But you know, I woke up on my 16th birthday and no one made a big deal out of it. Didn't my parents know this was the most important day of my life and theirs? And by the one small little token of a gift on the counter when I woke up, they were certainly unaware of that. I made it pretty clear to everybody that I wasn't very happy, uh, really showing forth my sin here. Uh, This is a a vulnerable story. Um, But you know, it became really apparent at lunchtime. Because see, while I was upset that no one was giving me my due, my parents had indeed surprised, uh, planned a great surprise birthday party with all of my friends at lunch. And my sin just came crashing down before me. And I I saw the Lord show me very quickly that I had not handled things very well. I had not responded to the good news well of being 16. I had not responded well to the giving of a gift. I have no clue what it was, but knowing my parents, I'm sure it was a good one. I did not respond well to something good. And this is what we see in this text this morning, that Herod does not respond well at all. He does not respond well at all to the coming of the best thing in the world, the God-man Jesus. We've looked at several responses so far. We've looked at how people respond differently to, to different things. We've seen how the angels respond in worship and the shepherds respond in faith. And we saw this pattern of conversion last week. But today, unfortunately, we have to look at the response of Herod. The response of unbelief, of utter, rank unbelief. And so I would tell you this morning, don't be like Herod. Well, you'll remember last week as we looked at um, the wise men, as they had come to Jerusalem in a great multitude of people. It it wasn't just three, they weren't kings and there weren't three of them. They had come to pay homage to this king who had been born, born the king of the Jews. And so they packed up their goods and they probably went up to a thousand miles away over many, many months. And they came to Jerusalem looking for this king and he wasn't there. And no one knew about this king. And so Herod heard about this great delegation that had come and he was very troubled. He was very troubled indeed. He was not troubled for good reason. He was troubled because his power and his authority 
had been threatened. And so he calls together the uh, chief priests and the scribes and, and he says to them, hey, where is this Christ that you've been telling me about that I didn't believe in? I had never thought it might be true. I thought it was just an old wives' tale. And, and all of a sudden he's here, so tell me where he is. It turns out he's to be born in Bethlehem. And so he calls the wise men secretly so no one would know and said, so, so tell me when this star appeared. They did that so that he would know how old the child was. And he said, when you go and pay homage to him, come back, send word that I too can come and pay homage to him, that I can worship him. So the wise men leave and they follow the star uh, to, to Bethlehem and they, and they lay their gifts down before the infant king Jesus and they pay homage or worship him. And then being warned in a dream that Herod was had bad ideas, bad designs for this child, they left by a different way, directly disobeying the king of the land's direct command. Well, this is where we pick up our text this morning in verse 13. And we find that an angel appeared to Joseph. Appeared to Joseph telling him that soon uh, that Herod would seek out the child to destroy him. Now, I had a really good southern Greek uh, professor in seminary. I don't mean he was from the south of Greece. I mean he was from, the, from our south, but he taught Greek. And he required two things. When we translated you, the plural you, we had to translate it y'all. And we translated about to in this text, we had to translate it fixing to. Well, something's fixing to happen. And this text says that Herod is fixing to search out to destroy this child. Now, we use fixing to when we're on the cusp of doing it. Or we're delaying it when someone asks, oh, I'm fixing to do that. But you know, where are you going? Oh, I'm fixing to go to work. Or I'm fixing to go do a little shopping. We're on the way out the door. Well, Bethlehem and Jerusalem are about six miles apart. And so we read that Herod is fixing to go and see, search out this child and to destroy him. Joseph would have gotten quite alarmed. We can assume that Joseph knew the reputation of Herod. That he was an evil man, a tyrant, a paranoid tyrant. And so, and only six miles away, even in the days of camel or donkey, or even walking and running, six miles is not terribly far. And so we, we can assume that Joseph would have woken up Mary that very night and, and grabbed up the, the infant, not infant, toddler child, Jesus. So we gotta go. If someone came to you and said, hey, you gotta leave your house right now and you're never coming back, what would you grab? What would you grab? What would Joseph have grabbed? Certainly by this point he had established himself as a carpenter in Bethlehem. They hadn't gone back. Would he have grabbed his tools? We know he certainly would have grabbed those three gifts from the wise men, from the magi of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Perhaps that's how they financed their trip. And they went down to Egypt. And they're told to go to Egypt and stay there until I come and tell you otherwise, that the angel here. And so they hurry down and they go to Egypt, this land where God's people have sojourned in time of trouble like Abraham did. And, and Joseph's brothers came did during time of famine. So they go down to Egypt to escape Herod out of his jurisdiction. Well, we find then that, that, that Herod learned that he had been tricked. Now the ESV uh, and the NIV translate this well, but the King James has it down pat, and it says that he was mocked. He was mocked by the wise men. And that's, that's the force of this word here. 
And of all the people you want to mock, it's not a tyrant. It's not a paranoid, evil king like Herod. So he feels mocked. He feels the force of the mockery. He feels the fact that that these wise men and all their delegation have betrayed him and had not obeyed his command and have left by another way. And so what does he do? He quickly sends out soldiers to kill. And when I got to this point when I was studying this week, I physically rolled back from my desk and started crying. Because think about what's about to happen. Between 10 and 30 boys, we think, are are about to be slaughtered. And all the pictures have them as infants, but they weren't. My boy just turned three nine days ago. And 10 days ago, he was two and under. Sure, there were a few infants. There were others who knew what was going on. There's a cost to unbelief. A deadly one. And so he, he sends them to kill. And somewhere between 10 and 30, probably, in the region of Bethlehem, were slaughtered. How many mothers and fathers died protecting their children? How many generations were destroyed? How many people would have lost their land in the long run because there wasn't a male heir? And so we find Matthew quoting here from Jeremiah 31, speaking of Rachel, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, as she metaphorically cries over the sons of those tribes who will never come back from exile, who will die outside the promised land. And now these mothers too refuse to be comforted. Herod did not believe. Don't be like Herod. There are symptoms of unbelief. You know, unbelief is not really the the problem. It's one of the symptoms of the problem. The problem is pride. But there are several symptoms in this text of pride, of general unbelief. The first is lack of submission to the king. We see this in verse 3. We find in verse 3 when news of this delegation had come to find the the king of the Jews that Herod is troubled. Now he's not troubled in a saving way. He's troubled because there is now a rival. He's, He's ruled for about three decades by this point. And suddenly there's a rival on the scene and he will brook no rival. He fails to submit to the kingship of Jesus. My friends, there is one king and his name is not Parker. It's not whatever your name is. It's King Jesus. In pride, we are prideful people. And pride says that I get to decide what's right. And I get to decide what I get to do. And I'm sovereign and I'm in control. But my friends, if there is one king and his name is Jesus and he is sovereign, that is a place of folly to live. The Savior had come. The King had come. But Herod failed. He failed to submit to the kingship of Jesus. Have you submitted yourself to the kingship of Jesus? Well, but that's a passive thing, right? Not doing something, that's a passive thing. But there's also active here. There's active active unbelief or disbelief. And we find it in verse 16 where we find 
that Herod is going to send out his, his goons to seek to destroy the Lord. You know, the fact is, in the Bible, unbelief is presented in two ways. A passive way of not believing, but also a very active way, an active unbelief. We find this in Romans 5 verse 10, where we learn that Christ has reconciled us when we were yet still enemies. Herod was his enemy. We are his enemy apart from Christ working in our hearts. We are just as much an enemy of God as Herod was until Christ works in our hearts and we turn our lives over to him. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now amongst, working amongst the sons of disobedience. This is Satan. Romans 6 speaks of Christians as their old master was Satan. Colossians 2 tells us that we are either in the kingdom or the domain of of darkness or that of light. There is no middle ground. There's no no man's land. It is a a razor sharp edge. And we either know the Lord or we don't. We are in unbelief or we are in belief by God's grace. And Herod is very much in the camp of unbelief. We also see from history something, a, a, a symptom of Herod's pride and unbelief. And it's that he trusted in his own merits for meaning, significance, for salvation. You know, while while it isn't in court in the text, historical record and the the archaeological record make it very clear that Herod liked to do things big and he liked to be known for them. He restored the Jewish temple. That seems like a great religious thing to do. But he also paid for or financed uh, several temples to pagan gods. It was to get favor with people. He, he built uh, great fortresses in Jericho, Herodium, Macarius, Sebast, and Masada. And he would go on to make this huge, monumental palace in Jericho for himself. Today we call such a man a self-made man. He is the poster child of the American dream. Great achievements in life and proudly finding their significance in all they have done, building big businesses, running for political office, accumulating great wealth, all the things that our society says are good, and we find our significance in these things. My friends, unbelief is a costly thing, and it's a real thing. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable because they trusted in themselves. You don't have to be a big wig like, um, uh, like, uh, like Herod or insert well-known name here, Steve Jobs and others. You don't have to be a a man like that. To find meaning, to find salvation, to trust in in your own works, to be just like Herod, it may look different, but it's the same thing. There's one person that'll save you and it's Jesus Christ and it's not you, it's not me. There are different kinds of unbelief. There's open rebellion like Herod. I think we see that par excellence right now with ISIS. And all that they've done with martyrdom. That's direct opposition to the Lord. But I think perhaps the most dangerous is what we have in the South. And it's with the Christian facade. I love flowers from NDI. You know, I'm a terrible gardener. I've revealed that to you. I know that's not a surprise to any of you because I've spoken up many times. We have a lemon tree and y'all, I'd just like to tell you that we got nine lemons off that tree this year. But when you have one plant to take care of, you set an alarm on your iPhone every day to do it, you can usually keep it alive. So, in, so I appreciate flowers and arrangements from NDI. And sometimes it's even hard to tell if they're fake or not, even right up next to them. Maybe you can, but I can't. 
And I found that the only way you can tell is really is looking at the joints of where they're all connected. And that's where you can see the, the paper and the, how they put it together. It looks like the real thing, but let me tell you something. If you put a plant like that, an NDI arrangement out in the sun and fertilize it and water it and put a reminder on your iPhone, for years you will never get any fruit off of it. Why? It looks like the real thing. But unless you tape that fruit to it, it's never going to produce. It looks like it, but it's not the real thing. There's a, a building between here and I think it's um, Fort Walton. I've seen it several times and I've always noted it because it's very strange. If you look on it head on, it's a gorgeous building. It has wonderfully landscaped. They must spend a fortune in landscaping. And it's a two-story brick building. It's just, it's really nice. And I think it's a financial services building. I think that's the kind of place I would take my money to. But if you just go to the side a little bit, you'll notice that it's just a facade. And the rest is a one-story ugly steel building. A two-story facade on a one-story uh, building. Or, or last week when we were, uh, had that wonderful backdrop for our service and for the play, it may surprise you, but I was not preaching in front of a jail. I was not preaching in front of a general store. It was a piece of canvas that someone had, had stitched together lovingly and had painted, spent great time doing. It was a facade. It looked real-ish but it wasn't the real thing. That's the, that's, the, that's the most dangerous kind of unbelief, isn't it? And we have it in the South. I mean, it's just rank in the South. My father will tell you he thought he was a believer until his mid-30s. That it's not just outward observance. It's not just showing up for church every once in a while. It's a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Personally submitting to his kingship and having a relationship with the Savior of the world as, as we are adopted into his family. As we personally experience the transforming grace of our Savior and our sins are forgiven. You know, we speak of America being a Christian nation or, or does a majority go to church or not. It kind of hovers back and forth. But if you do the numbers, recent studies show that if you talk about what it means to be an evangelical, about believe, believing you must be born again, and the Bible is the word of God, and that hell is a real place, you're looking at 7%. 7%. Unbelief is dangerous. And the Christian facade of unbelief is even more so because Satan is out there to kill, steal, and destroy. He is the father of lies and he loves trying to convince people they know Jesus when they don't. Unbelief is so deadly. But there is another type of unbelief for the Christian life. We've spoken up until now of unbelief as unbelievers of not knowing Jesus. But if we're, if we're honest as believers, for those of you who know Jesus here if you're honest, we struggle every day with unbelief, don't we? To, 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 to struggle to believe those great promises of God that he has dealt with our sin on the cross, that our sins are no more. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that he promises to provide for us, that he promises never to leave us or forsake us, that he promises that we are his children, he promises he'll come back one day. How often we struggle with unbelief. And we look forward to the day when Christ comes back, makes all things new. And our faith is made into sight and our prayer to praise. Until then, we can identify with that prayer, that, that supplication from Mark chapter 9, verse 24, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, if we can return back to 
unsaving unbelief, if we can call it that. There is a cost. There is a cost. There's a communal cost. We see that today, I mean, in our text this morning of generations destroyed by Herod. Or children not knowing how to pray. We, we met one of those recently, a deacon and I did. He was four and he didn't know who Jesus was or what he'd done at Christmas or even how to pray. We got to teach him how to pray. He was four. Generations, there's a cost for unbelief. But there is also a private cost, an eternal cost. And it's called hell. It's called eternal damnation, and it's a real thing. John 3.18 tells us the consequences of Herod's unbelief quite clearly. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does believe in who do, excuse me. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This word that, that is used to describe what, what Herod is going to do to destroy the child is the same word that we find elsewhere speaking of hell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Same word. Should not perish, be destroyed, but have eternal life. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But we celebrate good news, don't we? We celebrate good news. And there's no place in, of pride and belief, is there? Just because we might know Jesus and others don't, there's no source of pride. Because it's all the Lord from the beginning to the end. There's a solution to unbelief. And Christ has come into the world in order to die that we might be saved. He came that there might be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He came so that he might become our sin, that we might become his righteousness. He came so that he might be both the just and the justifier. He came so that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He has done this so that we might have salvation, so that we wouldn't perish, that we'd have everlasting, eternal life. My friends, there is a solution and his name is Jesus. He is the king. And he has come to die that we might have life. And even as we struggle in the Christian life as Christians, as we look to him through the word and the sacraments of prayer and prayer, that our faith might be grown. My friends, I want to close with this. Hebrews 4, 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then from 1 Corinthians, I believe, may today be the day of your salvation. Even as we look for and yearn for the day of Christ's return, what a day of rejoicing that will be when our pilgrim days are finally over. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for saving us from unbelief. We thank you, Lord, for, for sending your son to die on the cross that unbelievers might have salvation, that we might be saved. So, Lord, work in our midst today, even as we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.
I invite you to turn to our last hymn, 137, What Child Is This? Let's stand and sing. you to turn and receive the Lord's benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen.